welcome to this week's episode of Over My Dead Pod, a true crime comedy podcast brought to you by me, Kylie Caldwell. Kate Carter. Holly Spear. So I know I kind of spilled the beans and told you what case I'm going to do this week. And I told you to act a little surprised. Um, But I have another surprise because I'm not doing that case. What? Today I'm going to talk (gasps) about the unsolved disappearance of Cheryl Levitt, her daughter Suzanne Streeter, and Suzanne's friend Stacy McCall, known as the Springfield Three. You bamboozled us. I did. This is going to be a good one. So this one is kind of a wild one, and I have a lot of information. And just for the sake of the plot, I'm going to bounce around the timeline a little bit, but I'm going to wrap it all up at the end. You might need a notebook for this one, Kate. Okay, I was going to say, should I take notes? (laughs) Cheryl Levitt her 19-year-old daughter, Suzanne, who went by Susie, and they had recently moved to Springfield, Missouri after Cheryl's second divorce. Cheryl was a cosmetologist, and at the time of this case, Susie and her friend Stacy, who was 18, just graduated from Kickapoo High School. An interesting name. Just graduated, I mean, the day of. After Susie and Stacy's graduation on June 6, 1992, the two made their rounds at a few different graduation parties around town. You know, stop at all your friends' parties. So this is where I'm going to throw out some different times. So at 11.15 p.m., this was the last known communication of Cheryl when she was on the phone with her friend, and she told her friend that she was at home painting an armoire, which I guess is a dresser. So I couldn't figure out at what time exactly Susie and Stacy left their last party, but at 2 a.m., the two headed to their friend Janelle Kirby's house. They were planning on spending the night at Janelle's house, and all three would join the rest of their graduating class at a water park in Branson to celebrate the graduation even more. Did you guys do anything fun for your graduation? I feel like we just like had it and like came home and had a little party at the house. Like these um, people are going all out. So in North Carolina, our high schools all went to a beach week. I, of course, did not do that because I did not have any friends. Um, And so I went to Washington, D.C. for a week to visit my aunt. And I toured that whole bitch by myself. And it was the coolest thing at 18 years old. (laughs) I just was like not afraid, taking the trains everywhere. Graduating from Russville High School, uh, we just had a party in a field. And that was it. That sounds that really sounds about right. Mm-hmm. But yeah. don't worry, Kate. I also graduated from a North Carolina high school and no one invited me to their senior beach week. <laughs> Anyways, once the duo arrived at Janelle's house, however, they quickly realized the house was too crowded for a sleepover with all of Janelle's family in town. Mm-hmm. We all can relate. So instead, Susie and Stacy headed back to Susie's house, where Cheryl's painting this armoire, um, with plans on driving back to Janelle's house in the morning and they would all ride to the water park together from there. Very normal. So bright and early the next day on June 7th, between 8 and 9 a.m., Janelle and her boyfriend Mike went to Susie's home after her and Stacy failed to come back over and also were not answering any phone calls. They assumed that they had simply just slept in because Susie and Stacy had both driven their cars that night to the different parties. And so when they arrived at the house, there were Susie's car, Stacy's car, and Cheryl's car, three cars in the driveway. So Janelle and Mike walked up to the front door to find a shattered porch light, which is right beside the door. Um, There was glass all over the porch, but the bulb was intact and apparently still on. Janelle and Mike swept up the broken glass before entering the home because the front door was unlocked. Red flags. (laughs) Red flags. 
There's a lot of red flags. So they entered the home to find family dog, a Yorkshire Terrier named Cinnamon. Cinnamon was agitated. Um, some reports say Cinnamon was loose in the house, but then I saw some reports that say she was locked in the bathroom. So mm. I don't know which is the case, or even if she was in the bathroom, if that was like a normal thing to lock Cinnamon up in the bathroom at night. So this is where the case kind of goes south. <laughs> we lose some evidence because while in the house, Janelle answered a phone call. This is before cell phones, so a house phone. Janelle said to police later that there was a male on the other end of the phone that said something strange and disturbing, which included sexual innuendos. So she hung up, but right after another call came in, she answered it, but quickly hung up again. Now, we don't know what was said. I don't know if it's that Janelle just doesn't remember or if they've just kept this under wraps. So a few hours later, Stacy's mom showed up at the house after not being able to contact Stacy or anybody else. Word has kind of like gotten out at this point. People are calling around asking if they've seen them. Janice looked around the house and she saw that all three of the girls' purses were sitting on the living room floor, undisturbed. Her daughter's clothes that she was wearing the day prior at the parties were neatly folded. The beds had been slept in and the TV in Susie's room was left on. I saw one report that said it was kind of like they had a VHS tape in. It had like finished. So it's just like the black and white static at the end. It's like they just got up and walked off. That's what it kind of looked like. Also, Susie and Cheryl were smokers who never went anywhere without their cigarettes on them. But they were also found in the home. Janice knew something was up at this point. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So Janice called the police from the house phone. um, But Janice f***ed up. I'm sorry, I have to say it. Because after Janice called the police, she checked the answering machine where she heard a strange message and then she deleted it. Okay. Janice. Janice. We'll we'll come back to Janice later because turns out she's actually a very nice lady. By the time police arrived, they had estimated about 10 to 20 people had come into the house looking for the three, rummaging through things. Of course compromising any evidence to this day police believe that these voicemails that were deleted um, contained vital evidence absolutely absolutely police did search the house a little further they found that there was nothing missing including money in the purses jewelry and of course the three cars in the driveway there were also no signs of struggle in the house besides the broken porch light the house was completely normal So police didn't really know where to start without any evidence or clues. So a neighbor did come forward shortly after, saying that around 6 a.m. on June 7th, so this was like a few hours before Janelle and Janice came over, she saw a suspicious van. There's always a suspicious van. There's always a suspicious van. This woman said that she was sitting on her porch watching the sunrise in a green or silver Volkswagen van pulled into the driveway of the house next door. The woman said that the driver was Susie, who appeared to be crying, and that she heard a man say, don't do anything stupid, back up. So the Springfield Police Department took this information and completely ran with it. They put on an APB for the van. They even bought one exactly like it, and they put it out front of their police department with a sign asking if anyone seen this van. Yeah, right there. Right there. It's right there. There were also other reports of like a brown van or a blue van, but everyone was coming forward with like different colored vans 
But no one came forward saying that they saw any of these vans that night or that they knew someone who owned or drove a van like that. Another woman did come forward shortly after to say that she saw Susie and Stacy after they had left Janelle's house in the very, very early hours of the 7th. So this woman was a server at George's Steakhouse. She claimed that Susie and Stacy came in to eat at around 2.20 a.m. and left around 3 a.m. I couldn't find Janelle's address, probably for good reason, but um, this George's Steakhouse is only like a couple blocks away from Susie's house, right off the same street, but the server said that Susie appeared to be very intoxicated, but for whatever reason, police have not given any credit to this, haven't really corroborated that it was Susie and Stacey at this restaurant at this hour, but I think it makes sense. Late night eating? For sure. So the national media fairly quickly picked up on the story. Of course, three white women went missing. By September, this was covered on one of our favorites, Unsolved Mysteries, 48 Hours, and America's Most Wanted. So on December 31st, 1992, so six months later, an unknown person called into America's Most Wanted with some key facts. This person stated that the three women were buried on a farm in Webster County, Missouri. So when America's Most Wanted tried to connect the caller with the Springfield Police Department, the anonymous caller hung up. We're going to come back because I think I know who called it. But police did obtain a search warrant to search the farm. Webster County is northeast of Springfield, really not that far away. The results of the search are sealed. But allegedly, the report states that items were recovered. I mean, they have to be. If they weren't reco- if they didn't recover anything, it would be open, you know. It wouldn't be sealed. It wouldn't be sealed. Right. So another tip came in 2003 that led to another farm search. I don't know how many farms are in Missouri. A lot. A lot. Okay. So someone told authorities that they had heard the three were buried in the green van on a farm in Cassville, Missouri, which is a little southwest of Springfield. We do know from reporters on the scene that Police located debris, including pieces of a green vehicle, and there were rumors that cadaver dogs were brought out and alerted on several points throughout the property. But it hasn't obviously been confirmed that cadaver dogs alerted. I think if they had, obviously they would have dug up. If there was something, case would have been solved, or at least they would have been found. So now we're going to get into the weird shit. We're going to fast forward 13 years. Three women remain missing. So a local crime reporter named Kathy Baird was extremely interested in this case, and she began her own investigation. Kathy received a tip from a psychic who said that Cheryl, Susie, and Stacy were buried under the concrete parking garage of Cox Hospital in Springfield. Now, at the time of their disappearance, it was an empty lot, and construction didn't begin until September of 93, so a little over a year later. Kathy, however, still decided to hire Rick Norland, who I found out was one of the like lead guys during 9-11, who used his little scans to find bodies. Very highly respected in this field. He did his scan, and he found three anomalies. Stop it. Two, two horizontal and one vertical. He says match what he had seen before with buried human remains. This is so, interesting. So you may be wondering, did police search the parking garage? Probably not. They did not. Of course. They refused to dig up anything or take any samples from the concrete. 
And they basically have told reporters that Kathy's tips were horseshit and they come from psychics. So I'm going to show you these scans. On ground scans, when they do stuff like that, it's you see the lines, but if there's any disturbance in the lines, that means there's stuff under the ground, obviously. But the disturbance kind of show you where it's thicker than it is in other places. For the listeners, it kind of looks like like a heart monitor. And it's supposed to be like a flat line. Mm-hmm. And then if there's any disturbance, it would tick up. So when I first heard about these scans, I was like, okay, obviously they're in there. But after doing some research with the web sleuths, I don't really know what to think. I think the biggest nail in the coffin, no pun intended, is that if there were human bodies in there, they would have been discovered during construction. If they had been buried there, you know, the day of or soon after their disappearance, like the construction of it, like leveling the ground, the parking garage that just built straight on the ground, like they put support underground and stuff like that. I think it would have revealed something. Unless it was like uh, they just poured concrete. Like, was it already leveled or had they not touched that area at all before the I'm not sure. Gosh. I just thought that construction began in September of 93. So I assume okay. before then, it was just nothing was going on. Yeah. yeah. Well, we have some more weird shit because Miss Kathy has not spoken publicly about this case in a long time and refuses to investigate further. The last thing she told reporters was she knows the outcome of the disappearance, but won't say any more because of threats on her life. What? Wait, no. A little fun fact about me is that, like, one of my reoccurring dreams is to, like, go into a witness protection program. If I was Kathy, I would spill the beans and I would just go get a whole new identity. Yeah, I would too. Absolutely. It's a reoccurring dream for you? Not really a dream, just like a wish. Oh. I feel like it would be nice just every once in a while. I was thinking it was nice that that was your reoccurring dream because mine is like all my teeth falling out of my head. I get that one a lot. So now we did some weird shit. We're going to get into the juicy shit. Um, and we're going to talk about the persons of interest. There's quite a few. I've kind of narrowed it down to the big ones. And I have a secret that I didn't tell you earlier. Cheryl has another child who is the full brother of Susie named Bart Streeter. So at the time of the disappearance, Bart lived in his own apartment in Springfield because he was estranged from the family due to his alcohol abuse problems. Susie actually lived with Bart for a little bit in that apartment, but after a fight when Bart was drunk, she moved back in with her mom. Apparently, at the time of the disappearance, neither Cheryl nor Susie had spoken to him in a while. So right away, police did question and polygraph Bart, who passed and had an alibi. However, he still comes up on a lot of web sleuths radar due to the estrangement and also because of some somewhat recent behavior. In 2000, Bart was charged with first-degree kidnapping by force or coercion in Las Vegas. I couldn't find any details about this, but I did find the, like, charge cover sheet that shows the charges and that he was convicted of two felonies for this. Well, Bart tried to do it again. Oh. (laughs) February 28th in 2019, so not that long ago, Bart was arrested in Tennessee for public intoxication, disorderly conduct, and attempted false imprisonment. The police report states that Bart drunkenly walked into a nail salon, claiming to be the grandfather of a 15-year-old girl in the lobby. Um, He didn't know her. She didn't know him. 
and she was there with her actual grandma. We've got some issues. Hmm. So some of the theories I kind of find hard to believe is that it would be a random attacker because if you pull up to a house between maybe 3 and 6 a.m., that's like the narrow down time frame, and there's three cars in the driveway, is that the house you're going to go into? There's no way. And that's one of the things people keep bringing up is that like Bart would know who's staying in the house and whose cars those were. And also just, I mean, yes, it was two younger women and the mom, but I feel like three against one is a hard, that'd be hard to do. That'd be hard to do. So, you know, it had to be someone they knew. Yeah, either they knew him or maybe all three were asleep. But there wasn't any, it didn't look like there was any blood or anything. So it wasn't like they were attacked. They were definitely coerced out of the house. That's what I think too. So Bart's little weird behaviors. Um, he's actually been very cooperative with police. And he's kind of been leading family movement to like, hey, what's going on? What's the dealio? Um, he's actually appeared on other podcasts about this case. He also runs the blog, Streeter Family Blog. It's still up. He still updates it with just updates on the case and he also posts like happy birthday i've seen people talk about online if bart i not had this behavior beforehand or if this is just started because of the alcohol abuse and because his mom and sister are missing which i mean we don't really know so another person of interest is mr robert craig cox in their relation to the cox hospital we talked about earlier In 1997, while Robert was imprisoned in Texas for kidnapping and robbery um, and also a suspect for a murder in Florida, he started talking to the press. Mm. He told a journalist that he knew the three were murdered and that their bodies would never be recovered. So this was in Texas. But at the time of the disappearance of the three, he was actually living in Springfield right across the street. Oh, he was there, there. He was there, there. Furthermore... He, at the time, was working at a car dealership nearby, which just so happens to be the exact same one where Stacy's dad worked. Stacy <laughs> and her sisters often visited their dad at work. And so police wanted to talk to Robert right away. But when the police showed up, Robert said that during the disappearance, he was actually at church with his girlfriend. His girlfriend corroborated this, but she later recanted, saying that Robert told her to say that. So police come back to Robert. They're like, hey, girlfriend didn't check out. Then he was like, oh, no, I was at my parents' house. His parents confirmed it. Do we trust them? No. 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 So out of all the people I want to talk about, Robert is the only one who has refused to take a polygraph. And he has said that he will disclose what happened after um, his mother passes away. So this was 25 years ago. I can't imagine his mom is still alive at this point. Couldn't find any confirmation, but he still hasn't talked. He was later convicted of that murder in Florida. The woman, I couldn't figure out her name, but it was later overturned due to a lack of DNA evidence. But we have some good news. He was sentenced to life for the robbery and attempted kidnapping charge, which was on a 12-year-old girl. Disgusting. Apparently, he held a gun to the 12-year-old girl's head. Um, but then I have some bad news again, because he's up for parole in 2025. That's not good. I, what? Okay. 
Okay, so we're going to talk about the next five. And I'm going to rewind a bit to March 1992. Uh-huh. So this is three months before the disappearance. And this is when Susie broke up with her boyfriend, Dustin Reckla. After finding out that he and his two friends, Michael Clay and Joseph Rydell, broke into a mausoleum and stole gold teeth from the skulls and sold them at a pawn shop for $30. Apparently using Cheryl's car. I'm sorry. This Okay, so they went into a cemetery. The mausoleum. Mausoleum. So it's like the above ground. And they took gold teeth from human skulls. skulls. Okay. And sold them at a pawn shop. For only $30. For $30. That's still not a lot of money, even in the 90s. Maybe the 80s, it would have gotten you a house, but not the 90s. (laughs) Okay. So Susie wasn't involved in this, but obviously she wasn't a fan. Her and Cheryl spoke to police about this Mm. and were both scheduled to testify against the three. And apparently during the boys' interrogations, one of them, I'm not sure which, reportedly told an officer that he hoped those bitches were dead. Oh. They ended up getting probation. The last two men we're going to talk about are Stephen Garrison and Gerald Carnahan, both members of probably the funniest named motorcycle gang I know called the Galloping Goose Motorcycle Club. Okay. All right. That's not intimidating at all. Their logo is a middle finger running and underwear and cowboy boots. It's a good choice. Good choice. This motorcycle gang apparently was one of the main drug runners in the state and responsible for the majority of the drugs in Missouri. Didn't see that one coming. Did not see that one Galloping coming. Goose is just like a little red herring. Like, don't look here. Both Stephen and Gerald both have pretty long rap sheets. Both of them have murder and rape charges. They weren't arrested until quite some time later after the actual date of the crime because mm. these happened in the 80s, early 90s, before DNA. So Stephen Garrison originally showed up on police's radar when a friend of his came forward saying that while at a party, Stephen confessed to killing the Springfield Three. So police brought him in. We don't know much about their conversations, but we do know those three search warrants at those farms I talked about earlier came from these conversations makes me believe that Stephen was the caller into America's Most Wanted. Along with these farms, Stephen also said that the van would be found in Fordland, Missouri, which is about 12 miles south of the house in Springfield. But these search warrants and Stephen also have gag orders on them. Sketchy. And a little bit that property in Fordland, Missouri, where Stephen says the van was, was owned by a man named Francis Lee Robb Sr., who was later pled guilty to two counts of second-degree murder in a drug deal gone wrong case. What is happening on this episode? There are so many things. You're right. I needed to take notes. This is crazy. Yeah, yeah. Missouri just be like that, apparently. This is crazy. So the second guy, Gerald, also a member of the Galloping Goose Motorcycle mm. Club. Of course. Entered the conversation because of his conviction of the rape and murder of a woman in 1985. So this was before DNA. And he wouldn't be arrested until the DNA came back in 2007. 
So Stephen is currently serving a 40-year prison sentence for the rape of a Springfield college student in the summer of 93, a year after his disappearance. And the girls were how old when they went missing? 18 and 19, right? Yeah. Before we wrap this up and talk about theories, I have one more surprise. So remember Susie's ex-boyfriend, Dustin Reckla? Yeah. He was a customer of illegal things of both Stephen and Gerald. So basically, that's where the case stands today. Today, the former lead investigator, who's now an officer in a different town, is still working on the case in his own time. He has told reporters that the sloppy investigation and destruction of key evidence was an absolute detriment. And until someone comes forward with the bodies, there will likely not be any resolution. In 1997, Cheryl's sister had both Cheryl and Susie declared legally dead. Stacy's mom, Janice, refused to do the same as she still held out hope. And this is where we come back. Janice is a good woman because Janice founded a nonprofit called One Missing Link that helps the family of missing people. She also served on the board of directors for the Association of Missing and Exploited Children's and for the Southwest Missouri Missing Persons Task Force. Unfortunately, Janice passed away in 2021. The website for the one missing link is no longer up, so I'm not sure if the organization is still operating. But now is the time where you guys throw out your theories because I really don't know where to start. I don't know. It could be anybody. Could be. So this is what I was thinking with the boyfriend just at the end. I didn't think this the whole time. Could Could have been a murder for hire for the boyfriend to get the game, to get the motorcycle club, to get the women. Could mm-hmm. have been a drug deal gone bad on the boyfriend's end and the women were kidnapped for a reason and they mm-hmm. ended up just killing them. Could have been the brother. Could have been any of the other any of the other suspects too. This is crazy. There's too many. There's too many. And they all have reasonable like the guy who lived across the street and was a rapist and a kidnapper. And was there at the same time that this was all happening. He would obviously know when the women were home and when they weren't. Because he lived across the street. This is crazy. One person, one guy overtaking three women with no blood in the house. Nothing's disheveled. He literally led them out of the house. You know, like coerced them to do so. Unless he had a weapon. Even if he had a weapon, that's three against one. You know, like I would be shocked if it was just one person. I really am feeling more towards the motorcycle club just because those guys did have the backgrounds of killing, kidnapping, and I don't remember if there was rape or not, but they've killed people around the same age, same MO, stuff like that. So that's definitely... Three of the suspects are in prison. The other three haven't talked. Yeah. So at the beginning, you said that there was not much talk about the case because they were scared for their life. Is that? Do we think that that might be a motorcycle gang retaliation? Yeah, I feel like it has to be it because these three guys who just basically just had theft charges and got probation and then you have Bart who at the time had no criminal history having death threats enough to scare this woman into not talking. I don't think she would be scared of them. An entire motorcycle game. Yeah, I didn't realize Mm. Springfield was quite the hub for drug operations, but apparently it is. This is crazy. Okay. What's weird though is that we are assuming that all three of them changed into their pajamas, washed their faces. Apparently, police found washcloths with makeup on them. 
went to bed, put on a movie or something with the VHS, slept in their beds for a bit. So if it was someone who like followed them from the restaurant, they waited a while. That's why I think it makes sense for that woman to say that she saw them in the van at 6 a.m. They had already been in bed at that point. In that scenario would probably be accurate. Like you're that's an end of night cap kind of thing. Like you go and you, you know, you've been mm-hmm. drinking or whatever and you get food and you go to bed. That makes sense to me. I don't know. So the Springfield three. Cheryl, Susie, and Stacy still remain missing and unfound to this day with their fate unknown. And with that, this is Over My Dead Pod. And if you enjoy this episode, be sure to stay tuned for our new episode next week. Additional information about this case, including photos, can be found on our website, OverMyDeadPod.com, where you can also submit cases you want to hear about. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review wherever you're listening. Goodbye. Hi, guys. So we thought it would be fun if we did a little chit-chat at the end of our episodes. So what do you guys want to talk about? So um, I actually have a big story that I've been keeping in track with for the past few days now. If you guys are interested, it is a current murder (laughs) story that we are learning about, and it's international. So do you guys want me to talk about it? Of course. Give us the deets. Okay, so I'm actually going to read you guys a quick little article that is from People Magazine. Not always the most reliable source, but in this case, definitely good. So here we go. A 12-year-old girl in Paris, France, who vanished after school on Friday, was found stuffed in a trunk with her throat slit and the numbers 1 through 0 written on her feet, say authorities. The parents of the girls, identified as Lola Davette, called police Friday afternoon when she didn't come home from school. To their horror, her mutilated body was found later in that evening in a trunk near the building in the 19th Aerodustment, where she lived with her family, according to the BBC. Her body was placed in the trunk underneath a small pile of linens. Her hands and feet were bound with tape, and her throat had been cut several times. The autopsy also showed that she died of asphyxiation. She had also been sexually assaulted. The BBC, citing authorities, reports two post-it notes were left on her feet with the numbers one and zero. However, sources told authorities that the numbers were actually imprinted on her body with a device. The citing police reports say that the numbers were written on the girl's feet in red ink. So on Saturday, the police in Paris arrested a 24-year-old woman identified as Dabia B, according to the authorities. Security footage at the apartment allegedly shows that woman, the 24-year-old, entering through the front door of Lola's apartment building with the girl on Friday afternoon. Lola's father, Jonathan, who is the caretaker of the building where the family lives, checked the building's CCTV footage when the girl went missing. To his surprise, he saw her entering the building with the 24-year-old woman. Lola's mother, Delphine, wrote on Facebook on Friday, Alert abduction of our daughter Lola, last seen at 1520 in the company of a girl we don't know. Mother told Metro UK she immediately knew something was wrong with her daughter failed to come home on Friday. Quote, unquote, Lola knows that on Fridays you go straight home because we go to the family village. It's a three-hour drive north of Paris. So police found signs of struggle in the basement of the building. The 24-year-old 
Dabia B was arrested on Saturday and appeared before a judge in the criminal court of Paris right away on Monday morning. So on Monday, the prosecutor's office confirmed to the newspaper that the woman is expected to be indicted for murder and rape of a minor under 15 years of age involving acts of torture and extreme violence. A 43-year-old man is also in custody because police suspected he drove the woman and the suitcase in his car. It's unclear whether or not he's been charged at this point. The authorities haven't revealed a motive, but they said that the woman is psychologically mm-hmm. unstable and that she led she has alleged that the slang was on behalf of the black market. Police continue to investigate. Lola's friends and family are mourning the loss of this happy girl who loved gymnastics. Students at Lola's schools are really shaken about the murders, especially the classmates and the French president. Right now, his wife spoke out about this. She's really big about child, like female rights and and child rights and, you know, good stuff. And she said that the child's killing was an absolute and intolerable tragedy. So that's all we have right now. Like I said, this has been happening with over the past few days. So that's what I've got. I'm Kate Carter. But in a positive note, completely unrelated, one week from today, we will all be getting ready to go to bed so that we wake up the next day to get me married. And it is my job to get you intoxicated. Mm, not that bad, Kylie though. Is not that bad. the fun police. So I guess the only thing I had that I wanted to talk about was the new season of Unsolved Mysteries. It is so crazy. So if you haven't seen it, I would suggest listening to the Boys on the Tracks podcast first, or Crime Junkies just did a pretty good one. So we need to go listen to the episode by Crime Junkies that's called Boys on the Track? Yes. I listened to them around the same time, and it's pretty creepy. And the second episode, if you don't believe in aliens, get out. So, oh, volume three's got alien shit in it, too? Yeah. I'm excited to binge tonight. I'm going to binge. Oh, second thing. They released another video about the day before Gary Petito was killed. No, it was that morning. It was that morning. Oh, that morning? Okay. Yeah. Okay, one thing about that, I've seen so many people comment on that. They're like, oh, that everything looks normal. But, like, she literally has her arms crossed the entire time. He's just, yeah. like, casually, like, kind of way behind her with his, like, hands in his pocket. It looks very tense. Her arms are crossed the entire time, even with, like, a basket of food. Like, she has her arms crossed. It's still pissing. I want to know. I want to know what's going on oh. with Brian's parents. I don't know. <laughs> And that is over my dead blood. (laughs) Uh, See you guys next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.